Welcome to Origins, the podcast about the money behind the money. This podcast was created by Notation, a pre-seed venture firm based in Brooklyn, New York. For these next several episodes, we asked our LP friends at Sapphire Partners to step in as our guest hosts. We asked Sapphire Partners to lead the season because they're experts in the venture ecosystem, they partner with the best early stage venture funds, and they have a deep LP network to bring exciting new voices to the show. We're thrilled to call them an LP of our own, and we're grateful to have had their support since day zero of Notation. Sapphire is hosting these next episodes in support of their Open LP initiative. Open LP is a community-sourced effort that amplifies and aggregates LP and GP voices across the venture ecosystem. So without further ado, let's get started. Hey, Nick and Alex. Thanks for having us. <laughs> Thank you for having Thanks us. Thanks for having us. Nate and I are super excited to host this next season of Origins. And to kick things off, we thought we'd turn the tables on you two and talk about the origins of Origins, maybe a little bit about the origins of Notation, but more so about where you see things going and happening in New York today. That cool? Sounds good. We're super excited that you're hosting. Let's do it. We are thrilled to be asked. And on I'm the Sapphire, retiring. <laughs> you are That's not it. retiring. <laughs> On the partner side here, you have myself and Nate. And then for those listening, we have the Notation OGs, Nick and Alex. Hi. So why don't we kick things off? And can you tell us or tell everybody else a little bit about why you started Origins? What's the origin of Origins and why you, why you did it and how it's going? Sure. So um, thank you to everybody that still listens to Origins. Apologies for not uh, doing an episode in a long, long time. But hopefully uh, this is sort of something new and exciting and um, Beezer and Nate and the Sapphire team are going to take the reins for a little while and then maybe someone else will at some point or we'll take it back. We'll see. We can talk a little bit about the history of Notation as well, but we started Notation in 2015, which is when we met you, Beezer. And uh, as you probably remember, we had very little idea of what we were doing, how to raise capital, how to talk to LPs, and really like how to get started. And one of the things that we noticed at the time was that there was a ton of information. We're starting to be a lot more information from the venture community. And Fred Wilson probably um, really should should get credit for um, kind of opening up the venture playbook a long time ago. And I guess maybe Bradfeld too. And so founders had this just amazing new access of information on how to start companies. And so what we realized at the time was uh, there was just so little information from the LP community on how to start and raise a venture capital fund. Um, we can talk about open LP, but you know, obviously you guys have been doing a lot of really good work to begin to demystify that and create a lot more information that can be available for new funds and managers and VCs that didn't exist at the time, right? We started OpenLP around the same time we started Origins. And the simple idea was, you know, one, um, Alex and I could figure out how to make a podcast. <laughs> we, we heard it was a cool thing to do. At the yeah, time. which, you know, we, we, we went, had our ups and downs. Thank you to Drew, who's our amazing audio engineer that's helping us out now. Uh, two, we ourselves could learn about how to raise capital for venture funds. Um, and so the evil plan there was just, let's go ask a bunch of LPs to get on the record with us and interview them and soak them for information, quite frankly, in terms of you know how, how we could 
you know, build notation. And then the last piece was just like, we didn't think of this as proprietary. We didn't think of this information as like, you know, it's not zero sum. Yeah. Unique information that only we could have. And, um, which is maybe historically what, what it was. And we figured if we're learning all this great stuff from, from these conversations with LPs and, and other VCs that were starting firms, why not share it with the rest of the community? And um, one thing that is interesting that's happened since is in the time since there is now so much more information. So, you know, Origins is one thing. OpenLP is another great initiative. There's many others. Um, and so selfishly, like one of the reasons I kind of want to like hand this over to someone new is to like get some new perspectives and see where we can kind of take origins and in some new directions. And then the other thing that's happened is obviously there's been like an explosion of new funds, which we can talk about. And so I think at the same time that there was very limited information, there was also like all of a sudden massive demand for this information. So I think we maybe got lucky and fortunate in time to time that well. Can you share a little bit about where the scale of origins has gone? Like, you know, from starting to what it is today and you know, you've amassed, I think of, great audience, you know, a lot of both established and newer kind of fund managers. Yeah. I mean, we get, we get about 10,000 listeners per episode, um, which is not huge, but I think probably, you know, maybe like exhausts every VC and LP in the world maybe. Um, so I think from like a density and community perspective, it's been really great. And, and um, selfishly, we've met so many amazing LPs and other VCs in the industry through it. And I think, you know, the reality is like, we've probably, we've been a little bit delinquent in like the last year. And so I think this effort and, and having you guys host this season and, and others are, are going to be, you know, a new effort to kind of revise it and grow it to the, to the next stage. You know, I remember so clearly when you came and shared with me the idea for the Origins podcast, because we were separately ideating around open LP. And it was this moment, because you hear about sometimes when ideas just come in the market and multiple companies start with the same kind of general concept, even though they don't know each other. And it just was so present for me. I'm like, this is the time that people need this information. And I was so, yeah, so we were super excited to sponsor the first season of Origins. That's right. That's right. Thank you for paying yes. the bill. Yeah, no, it was great. <laughs> yeah. And to your credit, I think, you know, I think you saw way ahead of the curve in terms of the LP landscape and starting to market themselves and try to get greater visibility within the venture community. The other just interesting tidbit was how many LPs said no to us the first season. Like, there's no way I'm going on record. There's no incentive for me to do this. Like, no thanks. And man, like I would say maybe 50% of those when we went back to for season two and season three were down. Partly, I think there's some social proof and like starting to see other right. people that they know on the podcast and others. But like, you know, for anyone starting something new out there, like be comfortable with no's, both starting the venture fund or the podcast or a company or anything else, like you got to start, you know, we heard a lot of no's and just didn't care and kept going. Well, congrats and good for you because it's <laughs> it's hard persevering through no, right? Yes. As a founder of anything, it kind of sucks. Right? Yeah. Um, and I would say one of the things we're hoping to be able to do for the next couple of episodes that we interview is do both a combo of LPs and GPs trying to get at 
questions that we have experienced being asked over and over again. So we can help answer questions for folks, which might get a little in the weeds, but things around like, how do you pitch LPs? And if you're a GP, how do you think about various aspects of managing your business and really dig into it? Because we just love having a vehicle to chat. It's a bit why OpenLP exists too and has also expanded. It's not just LP writings, but also what's going on at the creation of venture because there are so many more managers starting. Yeah, yeah. Which and, may or may not mean there's more LPs, I don't know. And and there are evergreen questions too, because we set out to ask a lot of the same questions, but it's not it's not static at all because, you know, there, there are certain things I think that LPs are always looking for, but at the same time, the landscape shifts, things change, like strategies change. And I think, I think it's an ongoing conversation. So I think re-asking that every, every few years and having the discussion again is always useful. Correct. And in the spirit of that, we had a last conversation with you about three years ago, and we'd love to hear, you know, the latest with notation. What have you guys been up to, you know, and frankly, how is the market and landscape changed? You know, you were early to the pre-seed category and helped frankly create it. And now there's a whole, you know, evolution um, of the market. So we'd love to hear the latest. Remember when pre-seed wasn't even a thing that anybody knew about? Yeah. You I mean, it, it was it. a joke line. It was a, like, it was a joke for a long time in terms of like, you know, people would just say like pre-seed and it, it was always a good way to get a, 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 you know, a bunch of laughs from the room. <laughs> so I think that's great though. I think we, we have always, or at least I've always appreciated being underestimated to some extent and, and sort of, um, doing something a little bit different from what everyone else is doing. And I think that um, that's sort of what we set out to do in the beginning in New York, where it felt like all the seed funds here were continuing to move up the stack. And, and it felt like there was, you know, unlike the West Coast, where there are there's a ton of capital up and down the stack and, and a, a large and deep angel ecosystem it still felt like there was a gap in New York, um, and we were excited to work with companies at the earliest stage. And that hasn't changed. I mean, we have not tried to move up the stack or, you know, become seri- lead Series A rounds or anything like that. We still think there's an amazing opportunity in New York for a pre-seed, whatever that means. Because if you ask enough people, you'll get a million different definitions. Uh, and, and Nick's definition may be even different from mine. But, I mean, for my part, I think it continues to be Working with company, working with founders at the earliest stage, probably being the first check, investing often at the idea stage. Sometimes there's a prototype, sometimes there's a more polished product, but it's almost always pre-traction. There's you know no revenue, there's no users. Uh, it's about our conviction and the founders, their product vision, and and the market they're going after. So I mean, there's a lot to add to that and. You know, the round sizes have changed. The check sizes have gotten bigger. Can we start with where and how you've met these founders? How's that that changed? I think the biggest way it's changed from the very earliest days is, you know, we were still transitioning from being, you know, operators in the trenches, building companies ourselves in 2014, 2015. Um, and so it was more directly from our immediate network and and people we were working with, colleagues, things like that. Um, but we've had to build more of a pipeline over the years of because it's I mean there's there's so many funds and investors and founders and companies. I think you can't just sit back and wait for 
companies to show up at your door, even though you do naturally get a lot of inbound. So we've, I'm sure we'll speak about all the things, but we've, um, you know, developed our own like marketing efforts, whether it's origins or, or writing on, on medium, we've tried to build community. We've, there's a, a great community in New York. We've tried to, to bring people together to, to find the founders and um, what they're working on. As we invest more and have a larger portfolio, our founders introduce people to us. So they're a great source of, of meeting new founders. I think probably, the, I guess the last time we talked was three years ago. We maybe were just starting fun. Meaning too. last time we did a podcast, not last time we talked. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. We talked to Sapphire every week. <laughs> yeah. So I guess this is our investor update. <laughs> no. So, I mean, we had, you know, our notation one was an $8 million fund. We raised it in 2015. I think in hindsight now, and this is not to even pat ourselves on the back, but just like, I think we were way more right than we had ever even possibly fathomed. So, you know, the basic thesis being like, there were not that many VC firms in New York. They were getting bigger. There were no angel investors here, really. I mean, there was a few. And that there would be lots of talent in New York that could build companies to scale. And that we could be really early first funders and partners to those to those founders. I mean, in hindsight, like, I don't know, maybe we should have just funded like everything, you know, like maybe the scale of our ambition was actually like not nearly as large as it should have been given, given the opportunity. But you look back now, right. And we just, I mean, some amazing founders in fund one that couldn't really raise what you would think of as a seed round now, like a one to $2 million round and, you know, not to share all the the deepest, darkest secrets, but like, you know, the average valuation of our entire first fund was a $3 million valuation. And some of these companies have gotten really, really big, um, not just in the notation portfolio, but obviously broadly throughout New York and, and, and many of these companies now being huge public companies. So I think if anything, we were even we were wrong about just the, the scale of how much New York would grow and how much talent would be produced here. And so that strategy worked really, really well with fund one. You know, I won't again, divulge all the secrets, but looks like fund one could be a really great, unique fund. Um, fund two was a $27 million fund. And it was really to like go after a very similar opportunity. We dipped our toes a little bit more in other ecosystems. I think we became a little more flexible around what the first round looked like as the market was evolving. So some of those were, we call them people checks, like a few hundred grand at, you know, a low single digit million dollar valuation. Some of those were what you would think of as more traditional seed, like a one to $2 million round. We did a couple that were like slightly larger seeds. And then we have a huge crypto effort, which, you know, we can talk about too, which looks just totally different than traditional investing. And, you know, that seems to be working really well. So the plan with Fund3 is something quite similar, but obviously the ecosystem has changed like dramatically. Like, I think Alex's point is really good. Like Fund1 was about really just pulling from our network, having been operators here. And I, I was an investor at Betaworks for a few years beforehand. It was just largely pulling like, who have we known over the last seven years that we think are interesting people, they're going to start companies. Now it's not Silicon Valley scale, obviously, but like, you know, there's 
thousand people working at Datadog. Like we don't know all of them, right? Like you, you at, in 2015, it was at a scale where you could basically know almost every single person doing startups in New York City. It's at a very different scale now, which means the opportunity is much bigger, which also means it's like harder to cover. So yeah, I don't know if that was a good overview, yeah. but that's kind of where and we it's are. It's certainly more competitive too. And I think to your point about some of the companies in Fund One where they had trouble raising traditional seed, they were raising at you know lower valuations than you would read about in the headlines at TechCrunch. You know, we were we would talk about this with LPs when we were raising the fund, and the most common reaction was, "Well, that sounds like adverse selection. Like you're not going to be able to invest in the best people. If other people aren't trying to invest, then then maybe they're just not." good companies. And, you know, we didn't believe that, but it was something we struggled with anyway. And and I think it came back to at the time. And, and even when we were raising fund too, is New York a viable ecosystem? Because our, you know, we've been all in on New York, like focused almost a hundred percent on investing in New York. And, and I think that was the most resistance we got, you know, over, over time of like, well, I think, you know, your background is interesting, your approach is interesting, but we just don't know if New York is a thing. Um, and, and, you know, these, these companies that are having trouble raising, maybe they're just not good. And, and I think that we've seen, I hope we can say that New York is definitely a viable ecosystem. We've seen a lot of great companies come out of it. It's like Nick said, it's certainly not Silicon Valley still, but it feels like it's in that place where it's self-sustaining, where, you know, companies are growing enough, they can achieve scale here. Uh, companies have exited and then, you know, Angels then are created. They go back out into the ecosystem and invest. More and more funds have been created. It, it feels like that self-sustaining feedback cycle that that helps that you know has been happening in the valley for generations. But feels like it's just the first or second generation of of really organically happening in New York. I know we're coming back from the pandemic. I'm going to say back because I'm optimistic and I believe science will save us. And I know there's a whole question of like, does any geo matter? Because I asked you Mm -hmm. to make this question probably about 16 times over the last 18 Mm -hmm. months. (laughs) But that said, it does feel like New York was there before. And just walking the streets today super feels like New York is back. Yeah, I mean, any person, no no offense to anybody (laughs) listening to this, but any person that didn't think that once this thing was over, that a lot of really young, talented people would want to be here and live here and start things here was insane. (laughs) So I think you're now just beginning to see the very beginnings of that. The streets are packed. The restaurants are packed. People want to be around other smart, interesting people. I mean, New York has felt unbelievably good. And I think young, smart, talented, entrepreneurial people are going to want to be here. And from a funding of the venture stack up and down, I do remember the early days. And one of the things that we always thought was super compelling about the notation promise was there wasn't this angel industry yet in New York. And yet there were these wonderful technical founders in companies. And wouldn't it be great if you had money then to invest in them? And I do think as you fast forward, you see more and more people discovering, quote unquote, air quotes, New York from other cities, potentially the Bay Area. And we saw in our underlying portfolio a significant number of VCs not based in New York investing in New York pre-pandemic. Mm-hmm. And then I appreciate now where companies are founded just looks like who knows and it'll just sort its way out. We're not counting those dots yet. But it does feel like there's a lot more capital now conscious of New York. Mm-hmm. What I don't know is, and I'd be curious to hear you guys talk about it, is how much of that is still playing at the pre-seed. Because clearly, when you look at all the stats for 2021, 2020, 
for all the obvious reasons, the big dollars are going into big rounds. Mm-hmm. But then what does it feel like on the ground and in the, in the pre-seed people check land? Definitely more competitive than when, I mean, leaps and bounds more competitive compared to notation one. Definitely more competitive than notation two. I think, you know, and there's, I mean, pre-seed, right, Alex said, was like a, was like a, a tagline, a, a laughing point. I, 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 I wish we saved all the screenshots of like VCs, like being mm. like, pre-seed, ah, 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 good luck with that, right? Like on Twitter. I saved some. <laughs> you saved some. <laughs> Great. And so now I think, you know, it's not rocket science, right? Like betting on really smart people early and getting paid proportionally to do that through valuation and check size and all that, right? It's not, it's not rocket science. And so I think that secret is sort of out. And now you see competition from definitely a lot more angels in the ecosystem, other small funds like ours, many now being run by people we respect a lot, big funds. I mean, you talk to big funds or even seed funds, right? Everybody's talking about going earlier and, you know, it's like, it's competitive, I think there's like probably a couple different ways to think about it. It's probably, it's not Silicon Valley. It's not competitive like it is in Silicon Valley, which is, you know, at least from stories and talking to other people sounds truly, truly nutty. There's one view, which is look like we're still underappreciating the size and the opportunity here. And like, actually the fact that there's like eight pre-seed firms now rather than one like still way underappreciates the size of the opportunity here. If the, if New York continues to produce 10, 25, 30, 40 billion dollar companies, like that can support a lot of pre-seed funds. On the other hand, like I do think you have to like constantly reinvent yourself. And so like um this is also kind of going under the hood a little bit, but like Alex and I have spent a lot of time in the last quarter and we'll spend a lot of time in the coming quarters thinking about like, what does the next evolution of notation look like? I think if you're like running the same playbook that you were five years ago, the market is efficient enough where like you're going to, your advantage is going to erode. So, you know, we kind of take like a founder mindset. We're like constantly paranoid, quite frankly, around like other people eating our lunch and that means you have to constantly evolve, think about new strategies, think about new ways to to win in the market. And um, I won't share all of our secrets today, but like we do have some, I think, really interesting, fun ideas for what the next few years of notation looks like. And the next time we have this podcast, three years from now, I think notation will look different, uh, meaningfully different. Not as in like, oh, we added a third partner, like different. And I think um, some of the things, some of the foundation that we're laying today will allow us to win in the future. Can we talk about actually, this is a really interesting um, point you raised, which is this, and this came up in the prior episode where we discussed the tension between staying disciplined Mm -hmm. and being opportunistic. Where do you think you're focused on staying disciplined and what are some of the areas that you are planning to be opportunistic in? I I think- one answer to that and to sort of tag on to what Nick was saying was that, um, you know, every few years, I think part of reinventing ourselves is related to resisting the really powerful gravity of being dragged sort of up the stack. 
which is like very natural. And there's a lot of potential incentives and sometimes pressure to like continue to move up the stack. And so I think one of the hard questions we keep asking ourselves is trying to take a, a pulse there and see if that's happening and, and thinking about returning to our, our roots or staying there in a way, which means like, to me, discipline around super early teams, people oftentimes, relatively small rounds and, and, and lower valuations, but at the same time, like not being stupid about passing on things that where we, where we know there's just incredible quality, you know, where we know the founder or just have so much conviction in what they're doing or their approach that we're, we're going to walk away because we can't quite come to terms or something. I think we've definitely done that a number of times and regretted it almost every time. And so I think there's that tension of like defining for us what discipline means, which is, you know, in our roots, super early teams, small rounds, staying focused on on things that are like within our core expertise experience um, and not having too much FOMO, which is really, really hard. But then when we do see something really extraordinary, not being so dogmatic about our own rules that we miss out on participating in an incredible company. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think our biggest misses in fun one were things that like looked a little off center and we were like scared of how that would look in the portfolio, scared of what our LPs would say, like that's dangerous, dangerous territory. Right. And I think today we have like the confidence to be able to do some things, you know, call it 10 to 20% of the portfolio that just look a little different. That could be crypto, right? That could be like a slightly later stage company or it could be an f- amazing founder that we've worked with that like he or she is going to raise a $4 million round. And that just is what it is. And we need to be a part of it. Right. But I think, I think also, I think again, Alex said this very well, I think naturally as you kind of get more comfortable and, you know, you have a couple funds that are starting to work. I think there's this weird tendency to become more risk averse. You want to maybe wait a little bit longer for like that thing to be figured out and, you know, you're willing to pay up for it later. Like, I think we need to still maximize risk, like not crazy risk, not stupid risk, but like we need to take risk. And I think there's a lot of VCs in this market, particularly in New York, I can't speak for Silicon Valley that like, you know, they're going to sit on three boards that year and like they need each one to be just right. And like if they pay up for a little bit, they're willing to do that. They don't want to deal with a messy situation like we need to maximize the risks that we're taking, then spread across a portfolio. And some of those things will work and some of those won't work. But I think there is a natural tendency as you do this for years and years to like become more risk averse. And uh, I definitely don't want that. And I don't think that's a winning strategy. Can we double click into um, you touching on crypto? You know, this is an area that you've been early to, um, had some success you know, what really got you excited kind of early on and how are you thinking about investing in the space moving forward? Yeah. I mean, Alex can probably speak to this too, but the really simple story behind crypto is we did some crypto at Betaworks, both hacking around projects together and also investing actually directly in crypto assets at Betaworks. 
so went down the rabbit hole a long time ago, um, probably going back to 2012 and 2013. Crypto went through a really tough period, kind of 2014-ish through 2016, which is around the same time that we were starting Notation. And the really simple story there is like, we view our job, we are not top-down thesis-driven firm. We don't opine about what we think the future is going to look like. Our job is to be like heat-seeking missiles for talent. I kind of think of ourselves as like talent agents, or at least myself, can't speak for Alex. Um, Like our job is just to find the most talented people and listen to them. And they will tell you what the future looks like. They're going to be building the future and beg them to let us invest and be great partners to them. That's like, that's pretty much the job. And so we just knew a ton of really talented, interesting engineers in New York City at the time that were building in crypto, right? And now you see lots of talented people building in climate. And now you see lots of talented people building in developer tools. Like, it's actually really simple. You just go and you have conversations with the most talented, smartest people you know, and you let them tell you what their areas of interest are. Um, So that was crypto in 2015, 2016, 2017. We made our first like real protocol investment and a crypto token. I think it was in 2016 out of the fund. You guys probably remember we did a lot of education and memos and, you know, everything in between and calls trying to explain why we thought it was really important to invest directly in crypto assets. And actually that's how value would accrue. The first one, which was live peer, it was not a company. There was no company. You could not invest in the company. The only option was to invest in the token and the protocol. There was nothing built either, but... There was also nothing built. But these were two founders that we had known for years that had started companies before that worked upstairs from us at Betaworks that we just, we needed to work with. Shout out, Doug and Eric. Yeah. And so that that's what got us started. And then I think... Once we began to understand what that looked like and what that meant and the security related and the custody and we've been staking all these tokens and all the things around it, that got us more comfortable to do other things as well. I'm speaking partly for Alex because Alex has managed all of our security, custody, staking and everything else. So um, he really is the, (laughs) the guy. I mean, one thing that was interesting about LivePeer is that it was it was a real opportunity for us to participate and in this case that that means in a lot of different dimensions but and and this is true for a lot of blockchain protocol projects you know we had a chance to be involved in the design of the protocol to be involved in helping to build the community to be involved in contributing code and documentation be involved in their mining process to to run infrastructure and stand up nodes and to stake and and do actual transcoding work and it's just like super valuable information and practice for us to to be in the in the stream there to be in the trenches to to actually touch the code and operate things i mean it's a really interesting way for us to contribute technically to projects which is different from our our typical venture practice where you know, we, we act as technical advisors and give feedback and um, help with technical strategy and all those things. But but it makes no sense for us to be involved at a, the code level or infrastructure level with companies. We're just a bottleneck. We're more of an outsider. We're not going to be helpful there. It doesn't make sense for us to contribute. But with a decentralized crypto project, 
you can contribute code like an, in like an open source way, or you can um, stand up infrastructure and run infrastructure that contributes to the network. And those are things that nobody at the company is necessarily going to do. They need people in the community to do it. We're not a bottleneck. We're actually additive as long as we do good work. And we earn more on our investments. So it's, it's kind of a fascinating way to contribute to projects. Can you share a bit more about the specific example, uh, I'm thinking about bison trails and congratulations yes. on, you know, a really exciting outcome there. Right. So, so that was, I think that's the extension there where, you know, we were doing the work with live peer and we saw that, you know, there were a bunch of other proof of stake projects coming to market. There were a bunch of other um, interesting technical early stage projects out there that would all need some form of contribution of what we were doing from the community, from maybe investors, from other people like that. Um, and we saw, you know, there was a lot of a lot of financial upside for people to do this. There was a lot of information to be learned. And we realized that it was going to be repeated many, many times. There was potentially a platform here. And we were talking with, you know, Joe and Aaron from Bison Trails at the time. They were having similar ideas. We saw there was a huge opportunity in the market. And so, you know, Bison Trails, the company was formed partly out of that experience. They had also been working on Live Peer. Yeah, I mean, that was like just a beautiful moment that sadly is going to be very hard to replicate as a venture firm where, you know, Alex, myself, uh, Joe and Aaron, we were investors in their last company, all kind of coalesced around a problem that we discovered together by working specifically on this blockchain project together, LivePeer. And all came to the same conclusion that this was going to be a problem that was going to be replicated across many different networks, experienced by many different people, and that we could solve it. And so I'm pretty skeptical of VC insights. Like VCs aren't starting companies for a reason for the most part. But that was this like unique situation where we had a unique insight. And then, you know, to Joe and Aaron's credit, uh, they just executed flawlessly, you know, since that moment. They hired amazing people. They won amazing customers. Coinbase was their largest customer before they sold to Coinbase. And they just knocked it out of the park. Um, and so it was just a unique it was one of those rare startups that just sort of works beginning to end. Um, With the serendipity sadly, of like perfect normal. timing happening all yeah. along the way. So there's always some some luck and timing that happens that that helps make everything work. Yeah. Are there any learnings from the exit side of that process? I think one one thing where our LPs were helpful, for example, is, you know, this was the first time where we were holding a um, pre-IPO shares that were going to become public soon. And this was a new thing for us as investors. It's a difficult thing to know how to navigate. And so it was great to be able to have LPs with great experience there. You know, we talked to Steve Abbott at Sapphire, who heads public markets there, does this all day. We talked to Joel Caden at Accolade, who ran the IPO business for Alex Brown for years. I mean, those were just super valuable conversations. And, and you know, it's there's not a simple answer because these are really hard problems. And, and I, I think we have learned enough to know how we might do it differently next time. Um, but having the comfort of like being able to reach out, have those conversations, benefit from all the experience that that everyone around the table had was fantastic. I'm going to have to ask you to take out your crystal ball and look into the COVID future for this. So you don't have to be 
feel free to take it however you think it's coming. But you and I had a really interesting conversation about the cyclicality in crypto a few months ago. My time frame's fuzzy. And you sort of talked about ups and downs that you've seen. Contemporaneous with that, we're seeing in our underlying portfolio that crypto, and this could just be because of when people were investing and when the market was ripe for it, exiting much sooner. Like your two years at Bison Trail is an example. It's not the only data point we have in our portfolio. It feels like four to five years to payout, which is very half the time, sort of averages speaking from a typical software venture investment. Take out your crystal ball. Does this feel like a thing or is this a potentially an aberration that we all just went through and we can't assume that there is going to be this kind of cyclicality in the crypto markets that would lead to a fast exit? Sorry, complicated question, but no, I, I remember so this conversation I mean, we had. I do think crypto has a very unique, interesting liquidity profile and time horizon when you combine that with traditional startups. So, you know, everybody's raising now dedicated crypto funds. That might be the right thing we've considered in the past, may do it in the future. But if you bundle it all together, it actually creates a pretty interesting mix. I mean, there's two universes you have to talk to, like like crypto equity, like equity in traditional companies. And that probably looks closer to traditional startups, although Bison Trails was also a traditional company. But Coinbase was an equity-based investment, right? And had, I don't know, eight, 10 years old before it went out. Right. And then there's crypto assets. I mean, I think undoubtedly crypto assets have a totally different liquidity and time horizon. I mean, all the early stage projects that we've invested in that are protocols that end up having a token. What would you say, Alex? Three years? Yeah. About three years. Mm-hmm. And there's also, there's often the lockup associated with that. So you maybe add another year or two. But, um, and we've also just gone through an insane bull run and who knows what that will look like in the future. But it is fundamentally different than a traditional startup. I think there's a really interesting amalgamation of those assets that you can put in a pool that creates some really interesting stuff. Like we talk about recycling a lot. You talk about, you're the queen of recycling visa, I think. Dubious title, <laughs> but I have to pass the street cred to my colleagues, Laura and Hillary, who wrote the article on sure, recycling. Sure, sure. <laughs> Cannot take credit for their hard work. But like when you think about creating a portfolio, isn't it nice if there's some assets in there that you could think have a slightly shorter time horizon that could become liquid that you can then use three, four, five years in to recycle back into the fund and fully pay for, you know, all the fees plus more, which has been the case actually. So fund one live peer, we've essentially used to recycle almost, we're at over a hundred percent, but we'll probably be more in fund two, a combination of crypto assets and bison trails will get us to fully 120% invested in fund two. So I think regardless of the cycle, and I do think actually we're now are in a bear market, which could end up I think much darker than most people think. For crypto. For crypto. Again, I think that will be a new, very exciting opportunity to invest in crypto assets right. um, and have those become liquid in a right. shorter time frame that you can recycle back into these funds. So if, if we if you, for example, front load some of your investments in a new fund into crypto that you think will have a shorter liquidity timeline, then you can just get to that recycling point that much faster. One thing Potentially. we did, yeah, the other thing we haven't really talked about, but another, we did a project with the Bison Trails co-founders before we built the, you know, they started the company, which is, um, we actually built a, a Bitcoin mine in Oregon. And all hydropower. Yes, that's worth mentioning. All hydropowered in Oregon. And that prints Bitcoin. 
we can now use that Bitcoin to recycle back into the fund. So, and we learned a lot more about. I think mining. we're we're not going to be in the mining business, and I don't. There's no plans for another mine, but I do think there are probably lots of different clever things, many of which we're thinking about, where you can invest in some of these assets to start, and then hopefully recycle them back in later years in the fund. And we also are seeing a lot of crypto companies, traditional equity companies, start diversifying their own treasuries. So, you know, company we work with just raised a large round from Andreessen Horowitz, their crypto fund, and like they're having a conversation with their board about diversifying some of their U.S. dollars on their balance sheet into other crypto assets. And so, yeah, we're not there yet. Um, Our plan is not to take a bunch of the money in Fund 3 and diversify into crypto assets. But, you know, I, I think you can use some of these strategies in interesting ways. Well, it's been incredibly exciting, you know, run and and really hats off to you guys for being so early, you know, to to that space. Are there, and I know you're, you're not thesis driven, but are there one or two other areas you're watching closely now that you haven't, you know, where you haven't made an investment yet you're excited about? I think we're historically terrible at this actually. And like, and actually what's funny is that I remember, yeah, we had a meeting with an LP in our second fund and, you know, they just grilled us for like an hour of like, what's your thesis? What are your four areas of interest? And, you know, I think a lot of VCs have like really good marketing sound bites for this answer. And ours our should have been better. Ours should have been better for sure. But, you know, the short answer is like, and sorry, not to avoid the question, but like, I just fundamentally don't think it's our job to do that. So like, I could opine as a friend, right? Like, um, you know, I think AR is interesting or self-driving cars, whatever, but that's just me like sort of bullshitting with you. It actually is sort of irrelevant in my view now to our core business. Um, I don't think we could have said that then, like we were too new and building trust and that's maybe an unpopular thing to say. Um, I actually think Founders Fund does a really good job of that. I've chatted with some of their GPs and they're like, get out of here with all this thesis marketing nonsense. There are some firms that do it amazing. USV is just something incredible and unique and something to aspire to. And they have an amazing thesis-driven strategy. For most super early stage funds like ours, Pre-Seed, I just literally think it's irrelevant. And we could spend tons of time on research and top-down analysis. And at the end of the day, all we need to do is find the smartest people in New York City and other ecosystems building really interesting new things in areas that will surprise us and give them our money and, and be supportive of to them. So... I don't know, Alex, you got any uh, <laughs> areas no. of interest? Well, do you want to talk about, say, your last one or two deals as an example of what caught your eye? Yeah. Mental health focused actually on a younger demographic, which I think is really interesting and all online and in group settings. And then an online real-time like live streaming education platform. Both are great examples of like a, a female founder in mental health that has struggled with mental health herself, that has... Um, been running programs for mental health for many years. Mental health is obviously like a massive theme, critically important. So it's no surprise that a really young, smart, talented, you know, passionate person is building around that. Um, Online education and education broadly is obviously going to change dramatically 
in the years to come, I think. Changed dramatically this year. Yeah, COVID, exactly. COVID highlighted that. What I think is interesting about this platform is that you see actually in other ecosystems throughout the world, particularly India and Asia, you see these like crazy superstar famous teachers that make many, many millions of dollars a year. And there's no reason why that, in my view, why that won't exist in the United States. And this founder uh, actually is, knows many of these crazy famous teachers. And it's like, we can do that here. It will add tons of value. These teachers are going to make a fortune and provide an amazing service to everybody across the United States, no matter what income bracket you are, no no matter what geography you're in. Yeah. So those are the last two and probably gives us slight flavor of some of the things that we're looking at. But I view us as like super opportunistic, super reactive to where talent is building in terms of like being thesis driven and areas of interest. And then super focused, proactive around the types of investments we're looking for, the stage, the way we think about portfolio construction, things like that. Given Origins started out being about LPs and origins of funds, and you just launched your fund three, can we tie the two together and talk a bit about how maybe raising fund three was different or similar from past funds? Just share some of those experiences, maybe something you learned, what you looked for in your LPs. You've had a couple at bats at this. What would you tell folks? Fund three was a crazy experience. And I think each fund, we learn a whole new set of lessons that we're convinced we've already learned. We, we, um, we always think the next one is going to be easier than the last. But somehow it's never easier. Yeah. I'm going to go out on a limb and say your fund four is going to be a lot easier. We're going to find uh, it. I'm not there. I'm not, I'm not ready to say it. We're going to find it. Yeah, we're going to find a $200 million dollar Series A fund. Yeah. Yeah. Four new partners. Yeah. We're, we're going to find a way to make it more difficult. No doubt. No doubt. I mean, to be fully transparent, so fund three, we had a plan to actually uh, staple a crypto fund attached to it, which seemed like a good plan. And then COVID hit. Crypto was in a bear market. I think many of our very important proof points around data and returns have happened really in the last like 12 to 18 months. So those were not quite there. Basically, in a nutshell, everything that went wrong, I think probably could have gotten gone wrong. I'm not sure you could literally think of anything else to go wrong. So we made an extremely difficult decision at the beginning of, or you know, a few weeks into COVID, that basically we're like, we need to simplify everything, go back to the drawing board, and sadly, the the crypto fund was a was a casualty. I also think, in some ways. You know, COVID forced us, I'm sure other VCs, other startups to like really focus on what is core to your business. And that's our core funds, our core operation, our core strategy. And so this was kind of an experiment with like trying something slightly new strategy wise. And so we kind of went back to core and this was before everything took off again, by the way, which obviously- The irony. Who could have known? The irony. Well, it goes to fundraising and timing. Totally. But fortunately, the great news is that what we found during COVID, and this was actually like a true test, right, is is are our LPs, our core LPs, actual believers? Are they really like believe in us long-term regardless of the environment? And we tested that in a very real way. And and the answer was was yes. And so- 
you know, deeply grateful to Sapphire, um, Accolade, Santana, and a few others who, you know, before the data had come in, even though we were trying this weird thing with a crypto strategy, even during COVID, were, were there for us, right? And so we got Fund3 done. Um, there were one or two that weren't, that weren't, right? And like when we put them to the test, right, they weren't there, which is also really valuable to know. And also in hindsight, those were not the right LPs for us. And just to put a little more context around this, we're talking about the beginnings of the COVID horror. Yeah, this is March, right? like, April. Not this year when things are like, no, woohoo, no, no. there's we, money we're We started from the sky. having conversations <laughs> in January. Yeah. And so we were relatively far along when COVID actually hit. And then, God bless Sapphire and others, uh, we ended up closing it. I actually think we ended up closing it that crazy, scary day where the market was down by like 10% in a day in April. And it was crazy. I mean, I, I, there were days where I was like, look, every single startup we've ever invested in is going out of business. Notation's going out of business. Like it was really scary. Actually, we even were having conversations and I think other GPs were having conversations about calling a bunch of the capital up front. Right. Like we just closed the fund. Should we call half of it? Ooh, I don't remember that conversation. Yeah, well, that was happening in, <laughs> in the venture community. I mean, I know I have another really good friend who closed a similar type fund and was like, I seriously am thinking about going and calling half the capital right now because like the world is ending. And there were big LPs we were talking to who were active and who during COVID said, you know what, we're kind of closing down shop for a while because we have too much exposure to the public markets where, you know, we have a venture practice, but we also have broad public market exposure we're not making any new investments for the foreseeable future. That was a bummer because there were one or two new LPs that we had really put in the time, got to know over the course of a year or two, I think would have been really good partners to us long-term. And, you know, the world fell apart and, you know, one was like a cultural institution and they, closed down and they have no revenue coming in. You know, you kind of understood those. There was one, and I won't say a name, that, you know, committed to our fund, was committed and 24 hours basically before we were going to close, dropped out and had been with us actually for like four or five years. And that one, even though it wasn't like a huge check, that one just kind of, kind of hurt. But, you know, who knows what they were going through. And yeah, that was a true like, okay, let's, let's like really test who's in this with us and who's not. And by the way, not personal, no hard feelings. It just was what it was. It's pretty crazy when you skip forward to a year from then, how wildly different the world feels. Even six months after Even that. six months. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, I don't know, Nate, help me be intellectually honest. I think it took the LPs longer than expected to start doing investments in people they'd only met over Zoom. Right. I think- on an anecdotal basis, it felt like the VC community got there. Maybe it was people you knew before, but it was like friends of friends, like it sort of networked. And I do think it took LPs longer. I, I don't know how many funds that were only virtual. And has that changed now? 180? Like our LPs? Well, now you can meet with people. So I feel like the data is messy. Yeah. I think it was harder for LPs. Again, also from what we've always said, it takes, it's a decades of relationship you're building. So it's, you can't stage the check and be like, we'll do six months worth and see what we're thinking. And then another six months, you kind of have to like, you know, jump in with both feet right yeah. away. I don't know, Nate, what do you remember? Well, it anecdotally feels like we've gone through a cycle of like four years of, you know, a, a market peak, 
euphoria about the public markets and IPO markets being finally open and liquidity coming back to, you know, the trough of the March, April, you know, scare in, in COVID to coming back and, uh, you know, both GPs and LPs starting to make uh, investments again, but still being measured about it to now another cycle of euphoria and crypto markets peak and FOMO all setting back in, you know, along with record valuations. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, truly shocking what happened in the six months after in terms of how quickly the market came back and, you know, everybody doing deals on Zoom and raising new huge funds and crypto funds and the whole the whole thing. And, you know, obviously if we had known that, we maybe would have done a couple of things differently, but we kind of made the only decision we knew how to make in that specific moment in time. And it was a very bizarre, scary moment, I think, for, for you know, not just startups and venture, but for the world broadly, obviously. So looking forward into the next sort of 12 to 18 months and thinking about future funds, what advice would you have for LPs now who want to build a relationship with you? I know you're not going to have any shortage of, of interest given the, uh, the phenomenal, you know, results. Yeah. What advice would you have for, for new relationships and new LPs looking to come into notations funds? I mean, hearing that question is truly shocking. Yeah. <laughs> given how many years there was of, uh, hustling and, 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 uh, so I, I still don't actually totally like believe that's the case. Maybe it will be. We've been very fortunate to have, quite frankly, like found Beezer and Sapphire when we did. I joke with Beezer all the time. I'm still like totally not sure why <laughs> she invested um, in I wrote a whole blog about it. <laughs> that's true. Because <laughs> uh, the thesis landed, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, you I were, mean it was, you were right. we were we were expressing what we saw on the ground and that was not made up, right? Yeah, fortunately, I think we've gotten to know each of our LPs over the course of a couple of years. That was actually like just the worst thing to hear at the very beginning. Like, let's get to know each other for a fun cycle. I was like, yeah, thanks a lot. We'll see there's you no, in three there's years. There's no fun Great. though. <laughs> <laughs> Great, thanks. But now with some hindsight and experience and actually going through COVID, raising a fund, you really do want to know the people that you're in business with and have the right levels of trust and alignment around strategy. And so I know this is like really hard to hear for a lot of people that are like just starting new funds, but you sort of do have to take the time to get to know the people that you're in business with. That's obviously easier to say now, many years later. I would say what was very encouraging to us in the very early days was at some point we just met enough people where you knew like, okay, like this is sort of the like close rate. Like at some point, like every 10 meetings we have, like three will say yes. And like, we're going to get there if we just have enough of these meetings. Many years later now, I think what we're looking for are LPs that can see 10 years out with us and are like, both understand what we do, really understand what we do, um, but also are open to us running experiments and evolving and evolving in ways that feel organic and natural, but are going to realize that like notation 
five is going to look different than notation three. It has to. The market's going to change as it has the last few years. So I don't know. Alex probably has some things. That was a little bit of a ramble, but looking for people that we trust, that understand who we are and what we do, and it's going to take time and it's going to evolve and are going to be there when we need them to be. Yeah, I, I don't have that much to add to it. I think I think people who are excited about what we're doing and believe in it uh, and, you know, who believe in New York, who believe investing super, super early is worthwhile, even if we're still writing relatively small checks to all the other funds out there and who believe like small fund size is a, is a worthwhile discipline. I think who just have similar ideas about discipline, early stage investing as we do and uh, can be supportive. But, you know, it takes a long time to figure that out. It takes a lot of conversations and there's no shortcut. It's just, you have to spend time together. I would add one thing now, which is like, I think now that we have kind of our, core crew, so to speak, around notation and our core LPAC. One thinking about like the dynamics of like an LPAC, like, is this person going to fit with all the other people around the table and be able to make decisions quickly with us and listen to us? And then the last thing I'd say is, I think ideally, if we could really be choosers, choosing sources of capital that we feel good about, that we feel like if we do great, is going to benefit some something really great. You know, that is a luxury, quite frankly, now. And hopefully we can choose some great folks that fit that bill. Yeah. I think that comes back to why we started Origins too, which is, you know, transparency is a is an important value to us. And we wanted to be transparent about the process, what we were doing, but it also extends to, you know, where does the money come from? You know, where does our money come from? Where does our investors' money come from? Ultimately for founders who are taking our money, they want to know where does the money come from and, and who does their labor benefit. And so, you know, we currently publish all of our LPs on our site. Like, we're open book. But, yeah, it's imp- it's important, and I think we can go, go deeper there, too. Great. Well, thank you for spending the time with us. It's been an awesome conversation, and we look forward to more. Thank you guys so much. Thank you for picking up the reins. Yes. Y'all are going to kill it. Yes. I'm officially retired from Origins. Um, although maybe <laughs> hiatus. Let's hiatus. use the word hiatus. <laughs> um, no, thank you guys so yeah, much. Thanks always. for having Thank us. you for your support. And yes. this was a lot of fun and, and uh, good luck. Good luck. In your Origins endeavors. Well, we'll be As listening. always, thank you for letting us be along for the journey. It's a, it's a pleasure and an honor. This podcast was created by Notation, a pre-seed venture firm based in Brooklyn, New York. We invest in product-focused teams on day zero. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. We want to thank our hosts for this season, Sapphire Partners. Be sure to follow their OpenLP initiative on Twitter and sign up for a monthly newsletter of LP and GP perspectives on OpenLP.com. Thank you.